Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You are listening to the Financials Edition film today on June 20th, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera. Joining me on Skype to answer some questions that our interns are asking is Jay Jenkins, one of our top analysts in the Financials Bureau. Thanks for joining me. How's it going, Jay? Hey, Gabby. Thanks for having me. Everything's great. Fantastic. Uh, so, for our listeners out there, it is officially that time of the year in DC where there are lots of young people in very uncomfortable suits sweating profusely on metro platforms because the interns have arrived in Washington, DC. And we at The Fool have been graced with a top uh, with a crop of top-notch interns who have a ton of questions, and we figured what better way to include the interns in the podcast and answer their, their questions than to have a Interns Ask Week. So get excited, because all week is going to be questions from, from interns for all the episodes. So if you're not excited about that, I guess don't listen, but I hope you are, because I am. <laughs> So um, you might have been no- you might have noticed that I am actually joined by an intern in the studio. Um, this is Emily Flippin. Everyone say hi to Emily. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Emily. Where do you go to school? What's your major? What year are you? What are you doing at the Fool? Sure, um, I'm Emily Flippin. I'm a rising senior at NYU Shanghai, uh, majoring in business and finance, and I'm with the investing team here at the Fool. That is super cool. I'm very oh my excited. gosh, yeah. I didn't know any of this. <laughs> I hadn't really talked to Emily beforehand, um, which is my bad. But Emily seems really cool, and I'm totally going to have lunch with her after this. Um, just to make you feel comfortable, what's your favorite Girl Scout cookie flavor? Sure, tagalongs, without tag-alongs. a doubt. Okay. Okay. That's okay. Chocolate and peanut butter. You can't do better. I'm not going to judge you too harshly <laughs> for that answer, but the clear winner is the Samoa, followed by the often overlooked Savannah Smile. I don't even know if they have Savannah Smiles anywhere else than DC, but they're like a lemon flavored cookie, and they're my favorite. Do you have a favorite, Jay? Uh, tried and true thin mint. I'm not going to go too far off the rails on that one. <laughs> Fair enough. So Emily's going to help us out today by reading the questions that she and her fellow interns asked, and potentially asking follow-up questions if any occur to her. So why don't you go ahead and start with the first question? Sure. This comes from Michael Schramm. He's an intern here with Editorial, and he asks, "What type of businesses are included in financials?" Yeah. So there's actually kind of a surprising array of companies that are classified as financials. So most obviously you'll see banks, uh, you know, JP Morgan or Bank of America or Wells Fargo or any of the regional or community banks uh, around the country or world. Uh, but drilling down into banks, there's investment banks where maybe Goldman Sachs is the industry leader, the most well-known, but there's also uh, a whole wide variety of investment banks other than these sort of headline catching national brands, whether it's in private equity or asset management or you know, mergers and acquisitions, so there's a whole subset there. Uh, on the other side of financials, we also have kind of specialized companies like business development companies or real estate investment trusts or even mortgage real estate investment trusts. And these are all fun because they all have acronyms, so most of the time we refer to business development companies as BDCs and real estate investment trusts as REITs and mortgage real estate investment trusts as MREITs. That's because right. And these companies are also really, really cool because they have typically very large dividends. There are tax incentives for them to pay huge dividend yields. Um, so a lot of investors really, it's kind of a small niche of the market, but it's really interesting and uh, really appealing to a lot of people because it's not often you can find a company with a 12% dividend yield and the dividend actually be pretty legitimate and, and safe. So Yeah, definitely. Um, and then on top of that, we also have insurance companies. That's right. Insurance companies from the very largest uh, like AIG and some of these kind of pure plays, all the way over to like say Berkshire Hathaway, 
which is more of a conglomerate these days, but really at its core is it's an insurance company and has been since you know for 50 or 60 years now. So, yeah, and then we also have payment processors like Visa and Mastercard, um, and then we have some kind of new players in the space like PayPal, and who knows what they're going to do with Venmo? I think everyone is kind of holding their breath on that one. That's right. And the payment processors are an interesting niche too, because at a certain point these companies kind of all kind of start to look the same. American Express is a good example. They're a payment processor, and everyone has you know seen their commercials and has heard their brand. But they also you know are kind of like a bank. They make loans, and those loans have to be repaid. So they have you know, parts of their business that function very much like a traditional bank. And then on the flip side, the other half of the company functions a lot like Visa or Mastercard, uh, where it's all transaction based. Yeah, I think that that pretty much covers all of it. Can you think of any other financial companies, Emily? Put you well, on the spot. I think the better question is what company isn't a financial company? You got all. A lot of businesses in there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and later on in the week, I think the real question is going to be what company is not a technology company in this day and age, really? Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> anyway, uh, do you want to go yeah. for the second question? Definitely. This question actually uh, is a question coming from myself. Uh, during my internship, I've heard about a bet that Warren Buffett apparently made with a hedge fund manager. Supposedly, he bet the manager that a low-cost index fund would outperform any five hedge funds he picked out over a 10-year period. Uh, my fellow intern told me that Buffett is currently winning this bet. Uh, and if this is true, why does anyone choose to invest their money in other areas? Should all of my money be in index funds? Well, let's, let's get some background first, because that, that final question is, is kind of the million-dollar question. So, the, the bet is true. Or the $100 uh, the, the, question, if that's all you have. <laughs> yeah, at this point, maybe the $100 <laughs> question, but a uh, million dollars soon enough. Uh, so, the, the hedge fund guy's named Tom, Tom Seeds. I think I'm saying that right, Tom Seeds. Uh, and the bet was Buffett puts uh, a bond that at the time was worth something like $350,000, but at maturity be, would be worth a million, uh, into a, the value of that into an S&P 500 index fund, while Mr. Seeds would take the equivalent bond and put that value into five hedge funds of his choosing, uh, and they would play out over the 10-year period. And whoever wins, uh, the million dollars of that bond goes to charity of their choosing. Um, so inherently, I think, in the bet, Buffett had an advantage uh, going, going into it. And the advantage is that because uh, Tom Seeds put the money in five different hedge funds, he kind of diversified. Uh, and so what that's going to do is it'll lower the risk of putting the money into that you know, niche of the market, into the hedge fund area. But it also eliminates his ability to put a lot of his money into one winning bet. You know, if there's one all-star hedge fund manager that you know consistently, you know, puts out top returns over and over and over year after year after year, it, in, in the interest of the bet, he'd probably be better off putting it in that that guy's fund. Uh, but he didn't. He diversified. So, with five funds, it sort of regresses to the mean, and he's most likely, and, he, and the bet has shown, he's gotten kind of average hedge fund performance, which is really not all that impressive over the last five years, ten years since the financial crisis. Uh, so he diversified, but he also sort of limited his ability to truly outperform. Uh, and you know, when headline, head, head, excuse me, when hedge funds make make the news, it's because they have these ridiculous returns. You know, John Paulson makes a billion dollars in a year, or George Soros breaks the Bank of England like he did back in the '90s. Um, so you have that averaging effect, and then that's made worse because hedge funds charge such large fees. You know, two and twenty is the common uh, fee structure, and that means. You put you know a million dollars into a hedge fund. They're going to take two percent of your money every year just for having access to the fund, just for coming out, and then twenty percent of any profits the hedge fund's going to keep that as well. So because of that really fee-heavy structure, 
even if the hedge fund manager does outperform the S&P, the S&P kind of has an advantage because it doesn't have to do you know, all that great. It can just sort of almost keep up. And then after fees, the, the S&P 500 probably may you know, end up having a better year overall. So that combination of the fee heavy structure with essentially the five hedge funds makes them an average performer uh, through that diversification. I, I think Buffett had an advantage uh, straight away. Yeah, so the, not just that. Um, the other thing, I'm sure that this guy picked some very reliable hedge funds, but there's always the chance that a hedge fund will just go out of business, and an index fund is never going to go out of business unless there's complete economic collapse. That's, that's really true. They can they can do anything they want. You know, at the end of the day, they can invest in virtually anything and any amount and any concentration. So there, there's really no control, and these guys are free to do whatever they want. And so there's that risk. Now, should everyone just invest in low-cost exchange-traded funds, whether it be a bond fund or S&P 500 fund? You know, a lot of people say that for retirement planning, that is a smart strategy. You know, diversify yourself through time. You know, so as you get older, you want more bonds that are going to be a little bit safer uh, to you know the rising and falling of the economic cycle. And when you're younger, put it in maybe a smaller cap, Russell 2000 type ETF, and go that way. The biggest advantage of that to me is, is twofold. One, you have the tax advantage of a retirement account, so you're not paying taxes on your gains until you know, you're 60 or 70 years old. Uh, and then two, these ETFs are just so cheap. Uh, a Vanguard fund might charge 15 or 20 basis points to manage your money for you, while a mutual fund, uh, or certainly a hedge fund or private equity or one of these more esoteric uh, ways of investing, they're going to charge 2%, maybe 4%. They're going to take 20% of profits, if not more. I'm just going to pause you real quick, um, because someone actually asked me this the other day. I hadn't realized that not everyone knew. So uh, when uh, Jay says basis points, uh, 15 basis points, that's going to be 0.15%. That's right. Yeah. One one hundredth is one basis point. Exactly. So it's it's virtually free. I mean, when you take into account you know the gains, 15 basis points is, is nothing. It's less than pennies. It's a, so from a value perspective, that's a that's a great advantage. And over a thirty or forty or fifty year period of time that you're investing, from your time now as an intern to your ultimate retirement, saving all that money on fees adds up tremendously. I mean, it can it can work out to millions and millions of dollars in in certain scenarios. So that's the biggest advantage. Uh, other people will say that an actively managed fund can outperform over time, and there are certainly examples of very smart investors who've consistently done that. Warren Buffett is an example. Uh, there are others. Uh, so if, if it is possible, it's just very, very difficult. And know? kind of unlikely. So just kind some unlikely. just some facts to, to put out there. Um, the Vanguard S&P uh, 500 ETF, which goes by the ticker symbol VOO, their expense ratio as of April 27th, 2016 is 0.05%, which wow. is nothing in comparison to ones that are, <laughs> I think, on average, a mutual fund charges 1.33%. So, like, there's some really low cost alternatives out there. Also, as of February 2016, the Vanguard 500 Index Fund Admiral Shares, which is what Warren Buffett put his money into for the bet, is up 65.7%, and the hedge fund managers are at 21.9% average gain. So, booyah, I guess. <laughs> and what do we have? Two more years to go before the bet's over? Is that Two right? more years we're to eight go. Years in? We're eight years it's in. Looking pretty good for Buffett. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So. And that actually kind of led right into my next question uh, because. I, as an intern, I have a Roth IRA, but I'm just not really sure what I should be buying with it. Because on one hand, I'm young, I'm not really risk adverse. But on the other hand, I know it's a retirement account. So should I be more conservative with those investments? Well, 
first of all, I think you're very far ahead of the game among your peers and a lot of people who are much older than you and that you already have one and you're already thinking about it. So that, awesome job. Like that's, that's amazing. And I'm just going to hedge in here that we are technically not allowed to offer any personal advice. So keep that in mind with your answer, Jay. <laughs> sure. So speaking very generally, I think the most important thing is to start young and consistently put squirrel money away. Uh, your own personal you know, risk tolerances or savings goals, that's going to vary from person to person across the world. But the key is if you continuously put money in every month, just keep squirreling it away, 5%, 10%, 15%, whatever you know, you're comfortable with and can afford, that's the most important thing. If you do that, you'll, you're probably going to be fine over the course of your career. Uh, and then beyond that, my advice would be to try to steer away from fees and you know, make sure you're doing everything in a, a very tax-advantaged way, you know, legally, of course, but make sure you're taking advantage of you know, Roth at this point when you're in college. Uh, and when you get a job, they'll most likely offer a 401k. You know, take advantage of that. Uh, the more money you can get into that account that can start growing tax-free and low low fee, uh, the returns will just compound and compound and compound. And over 30 years, you'll be able to retire very comfortably. Yeah, and if you have any questions about Roth IRAs or traditional IRAs or IRAs in general, um, I encourage both Emily and our listeners to refer back to an episode that Dan Kaplinger and I did on IRAs a couple weeks ago. If you can't find it, I will email you the link if you email me. Um, the other thing is that I think that it's pretty pretty common advice that you start out fairly risky and then become more conservative as you age because like once you start aging, like you're gonna be more reliant on that income and the chances for recuperating anything that you've lost when you're when when you're young you have a, a greater timeline you know so i think that's that's fairly standard advice that i happen to agree with sure sure you know a lot of people who are nearing a retirement age in 2006 2007 had to delay their retirement some of them still to this day because of the, the hit they took in the markets uh, and when you know when you're holding nest eggs on the line and the market drops 20 percent, that's such an emotional thing it's hard to think and act rationally and so too many people panic and then sell at the worst time possible, uh, and you can really do yourself a lot of harm. So to, to Gabby's point, if they had been in bonds at that point, maybe that 20% drop maybe is a 5% drop, and the emotional aspect is not as strong, and they're able to weather that storm a little bit better. So Yeah, so the long answer, short, is that there's no perfect combination, but maybe uh, become less risky as you age and it's not something that you can kind of set and forget unless you happen to be completely invested in index funds and even then like if the market drops 20% like you're still going to lose a huge chunk of your portfolio yeah. so just kind of actively think about what your goals are and where you are in life and manage your portfolio accordingly think long term yeah so I want to take a brief break to give a shout out to Levi Waddell. Levi is a loyal listener from South Dakota who frequently t tweets and emails us. Um, most recently, he sent me a picture of what he does while listening to the podcast, which happens to be driving a tractor. I am a holy terror when driving tractors. Um, I have almost run over a couple fences and people. Um, small small animals seem to get out of my way fairly quickly, so I haven't run over over any dogs or anything yet. Um, so I'm really glad that Levi is driving the tractors instead. Thank you very much for tweeting us, Levi, and everyone else. Feel free to do the same thing. So back to the show. Yeah, sounds great. Um, our next question is actually from Lindsay, our intern in Colorado, and she asks that if a bank is labeled as too big to fail, does that mean that's generally a safer investment? Uh, the short answer is no, and I think anyone who was invested in Citigroup or Bank of America back around 2007 or 2008 would wholeheartedly agree with that. 
So what does that, what does too big to fail actually mean? It means that the financial institution, could be a bank, doesn't have to be, a lot of insurance companies are also too big to fail. Uh, it just means that they're so interconnected with the global financial system that if they were to go bankrupt or cease operating, the entire globe would kind of come to a halt in the financial sense. Payments wouldn't go through, uh, companies would go to write checks and they you know, wouldn't, just wouldn't work, wouldn't make payroll. It could really send a huge shock throughout the whole world. So the consequence of that is that governments are willing to step in and prevent these banks from not necessarily failing, but from ceasing to operate. So Citigroup's a great example. Citigroup's gigantic. It was a massive global bank, super interconnected all over the world. The financial crisis hit. Citigroup started taking big, big losses. Uh, the capital ran out. They ran out of liquidity. And ultimately what happened, the government had to step in, forced Citigroup to raise new capital, diluting existing shareholders to an extreme, extreme degree. I, I don't have the number in front of me, but their stock today remains something like 90% below where it was uh, back in 2006 at its peak, 2007. Um, so it's safer in the sense that if you have your deposits on, you know, at, at one of these really large banks, your deposits are going to be pretty doggone safe because the government is just not going to let this bank fail. As an investor, though, it does not mean anything. Uh, any bank can fail. Uh, and if that happens, the, the brand Citigroup may survive, but the existing shareholders are likely going to get wiped out or nearly wiped out as the company's forced to raise new capital, be it via the government or via, via private new money. So Yeah, and the other thing to keep in mind is that this is a super hot button like political issue right now. Bernie Sanders has definitely mentioned this quite <laughs> a few times if you're following anything on the debates and or you have a Facebook account. Um, and so we don't really know what's going to happen. Like Maybe the government will provide regulation that causes the big banks to, to have to become smaller. That That's totally there's potential for that. But really, the only way to um, safely invest in anything is to do your research. And there's no 100% safe with anything, not even too big to fail banks. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so our next question also has something to do with banks. It does, yes. And the next question is actually coming from a fellow investing intern, Ben. Um, and Ben's wondering that, as the rate of auto lending, particularly subprime auto lending, has increased to record highs, are there any financial companies that are like overly exposed to this subprime auto loan mar market that could adversely impact this company's performance? So, uh, I'm going to I'm going to kind of skip around the, the answer directly to make a, a bigger point. Uh, subprime is kind of a dirty word. The mortgage crisis sort of burned in everyone's brain that subprime is bad. But we need to remember that subprime back in 2000, 2008 in the mortgage market was extremely widespread, like something to the tune of 30% of the mortgages originated at the very peak of the bubble uh, were subprime. And that bubble, when it burst, was just so, so, so massive that it led to problems literally everywhere. And the commercial, it trickled to the commercial market, the residential market, obviously, and it had broad sweeping impacts on the labor market, I mean, the whole economy all over the world. Subprime auto lending is much, much smaller than some prime mortgages ever were. So in terms of the banking industry, if a, there is a subprime auto bubble and it bursts, there'll be impacts, there'll be losses from it, but it will be nothing like what was experienced in 2007 and 2008 2009. Now, however, some banks will have more exposure than others, but in general, auto lending is a pretty small 
component of a bank's you know larger book of business. You know, generally, it's mortgage lending is the largest at most, uh, then some commercial real estate lending, uh, and then other times it'll be you know it could be commercial and industrial lending, like lines of credit for working capital needs and so forth. Uh, and then only then do you kind of get into these consumer loans like auto loans or personal loans. Uh, so I wouldn't worry overly too much about the subprime auto uh, loan market specifically. It's just it's a good practice if you're going to invest in a bank or in a lender to look at their loan portfolio and just see if they have any concentrations in general and make sure you're comfortable with that concentration before you, you dive into the investment. Definitely. Um, so, just uh, an FYI for listeners, when you say subprime, uh, that they're referring to your credit score, and credit scores range, I think the lowest I've ever seen is 300, but potentially lower that than that to 850. Um, and subprime is considered anything below 600. Um, and I have a uh, automotive financial lending report pulled up right now, and it looks like um, the states with the greatest default levels uh, are energy states, which isn't that surprising right now, sure. because if a bank is has a lot of customers that are reliant on the energy sector, and the energy sector was down for a while, because this is from Q1, so who knows what it looks like exactly right now, um, it's not surprising that people are defaulting if you know they don't have a job anymore. That's right. Um, but yeah, you're right. You're right that it's totally up, and it's you know just, I guess, something to keep an eye on. I think one thing that we're, we're kind of talking about, and we've gotten the gist of throughout this is that financials are particularly sensitive to the overall economy, uh, which is why Amanda, an intern here at The Motley Fool, is wondering that if even minor changes in unemployment and consumer confidence can have a great impact on consumers' willingness to borrow or the repayment rates, when the economic growth slows, it's likely that this sector will slow as well. So, as an investor, do you expect the economy is going to expand in the future? So yeah, the the overall point here is totally true. Banks are very much uh, reliant on the broader economy. You know, if if business is booming, generally business at banks will be booming generally. You know, you think who are the customers that banks serve? Well, they're individuals who need jobs to not only take out loans or buy houses, to, you know, for mortgages, but also have savings, deposits, all these other financial services that banks serve. Uh, and then on the other side, businesses. You know, banks are giving loans to businesses to expand their facilities, to buy inventory, uh, to make payroll, to do all these different things. So if business is doing really well, then naturally the bank also would do really well, and vice versa is also true. Uh, so to the kind of conclusion, do I expect the economy to continue to expand in the future? Long term, absolutely. Uh, short term, you know, your guess is as good as mine, is as good as anyone else's. It's it's impossible to predict. What the economy is going to do over the next month or the next quarter, likely the next year, uh, but in ten years, am I confident the economy will will continue growing and, and be doing fine? Absolutely. Twenty years, I'm even more confident. Uh, the system has proven itself, you know, for hundreds of years, uh, if not thousands of years, when you think back to just sort of the general financial system uh, that the world uses. Um, so, so long term, I'm I'm very very confident. Short term, I don't have any idea. You know, you think later this week, uh, Great Britain's going to vote to potentially exit the eurozone. How that plays out is going to have a tremendous impact on not only the markets, but the global economy. Uh, there's all sorts of worries about Chinese growth slowing down and potentially a bubble in that economy. How that plays out will have huge implications, and no one knows how that's going to work out. It's impossible to predict. That's uh, totally true. I mean, and, but to get back to your historical point, um, this is part of the reason that investing in index funds makes so much sense, is because historically, the economy always expands and companies make more money over time. Um, in theory, 
So that's 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 part of the reason it's such a good investment. But I also agree that there are while there are are a lot of worries about what's going on globally in the financial markets, um, there's also a lot of opportunity in a lot of countries. Um, people are are just starting to kind of hook up to the the greater financial market. Like, it's hard to see because you're in the United States. Um, I think that it's hard to realize that there's other there's other countries that aren't nearly as enveloped or enmeshed in this global economy as we are. And as those companies or as those countries join, that provides a lot of um, uh, opportunity for a lot of people. So we'll oh, see God. what happens. Yeah, and I think domestically as well. You know, you buy a good company in America today, because America is the leading economy in the world. There's a lot of advantages that come to that. A lot less risk. So if you can find a company that's you know valued attractively, uh, that's in a business that is likely to stay in business for the time you know for for, for some time to come, uh, and you really can understand their operations and, and make a good case for it. That company's probably going to do well over a ten or twenty-year period. Uh, the U.S. economy has proven it, and I have complete faith uh, that it'll continue to. Yeah, but you're right. Short term, we have no idea. We wish we knew, then we would That's make right. a lot of money. That's right. <laughs> um, do you have any other questions, Emily? Uh, I think that about sums it up for us interns. Yeah. Awesome, Jay. Do you have any other pearls of wisdom? I'm yeah. just so impressed that Emily's already got a Roth IRA as a rising <laughs> senior. That's so awesome. <laughs> You can thank my way, mom for way that. Ahead of for sure. <laughs> it's the first thing she told me to do when I got a job was, you know, put as much as it as you can into a Roth IRA, and it was the best advice she's ever given. As oh. long as it's within the legal limits, which I believe oh, yeah. this year is around fifty five hundred dollars. <laughs> I don't have that much. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I don't think most of us do, <laughs> but maybe one day. So, everyone, thank you very much for joining us, Emily. Yeah, and thanks for having me, Jay. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus.fool.com or by tweeting us at MFIndustryFocus if you have any questions, or if you're an intern, or if you're bored. We would like all, we would, we would just like some interaction. We like you guys. We hope you guys like us too. Thank you very much to Austin Morgan our awesome mix master behind the glass and thank you to all the listeners for joining us hope everyone has a great week